Hello everyone and welcome to the October 12th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd's Karen and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our crime report. Last month, the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office announced that Munir Ueda, MD, was arrested in Germany on suspicion of masterminding a massive workers' compensation insurance fraud scheme. He was reportedly awaiting extradition and expected to join his 15 alleged co-conspirators for trial. For years, his whereabouts have been something of a mystery. Prosecutors said they suspected the surgeon fled the country for Lebanon after one of his associates was arrested on a murder charge in 2010. And now a district attorney spokeswoman says that Ueda is not in custody and remains a fugitive. His whereabouts remains unknown. Prosecutors did not provide an explanation for this new development, saying that the brief statement would be the office's only comment. Indictments unsealed last month accused the 49-year-old Ueda of running one of the California's largest insurance fraud schemes. More than a dozen other people accused of taking part in the scheme are in custody. Millions of dollars were transferred into accounts in Lebanon and Estonia according to a bail motion filed by prosecutors. The prosecution of the co-conspirators will continue to proceed through the justice system in the absence of the alleged mastermind. Many of those arrested remain in custody with bail set in excess of $20 million each. Two brothers were arrested on federal drug trafficking and money laundering charges that allege they used a bogus pharmacy to obtain and distribute large quantities of prescription narcotics to black market customers. 44-year-old Barry Kabov and his 32-year-old brother Dalibor Kabov were charged in the 40-count indictment. <clears throat> the indictment also names Global Compounding LLC a storefront pharmacy off Santa Monica Boulevard in Brentwood as a defendant. Authorities allege that the Kabob brothers operated a global compounding pharmacy as a bogus pharmacy to facilitate the acquisition of prescription drugs from the wholesale market. The Kabob brothers allegedly purchased massive quantities of opiate prescription drugs and was the top purchaser of oxycodone among all pharmacies in the Los Angeles area in 2014. It ordered three times more oxycodone than the second largest purchaser. An inspection by the California Board of Pharmacy led investigators to conclude that global compounding was not a legitimate pharmacy and in fact was a facade for a drug trafficking operation. A search warrant detailed how investigators seized parcels containing thousands of hidden oxycodone pills that the Kabob brothers allegedly attempted to ship to customers. The customers in turn made cash deposits into Kabob-controlled bank accounts or simply shipped bulk cash to the brothers in Southern California. During recorded calls with an informant, Barry Kabob explained that he could sell oxycodone in New York for as much as $50 per pill. 
The indictment also alleges that the brothers engaged in money laundering and the structuring of cash transactions to avoid federal reporting requirements. The search warrant identifies more than one and a half million dollars in structured cash deposits into multiple bank accounts. The affidavit also details extravagant expenditures, including private jets from Los Angeles to Las Vegas and other luxury items. At the same time, federal prosecutors say the brothers were telling the IRS that the business was making little in profits or actually losing money. Officials from the Santa Clara County Sheriff's Office report that a Santa Clara County correctional deputy was arrested in San Jose and charged with workers' compensation fraud. An arrest warrant was executed for the deputy, Mark Navarrete, who is accused of workers' compensation fraud and several other felonies. Navarrete sustained an off-duty injury playing softball, but officials allege he fraudulently filed claims that his injury occurred in the workplace while on duty. He has been on paid administrative leave since mid-September. He was a member of the sheriff's office for more than 10 years. The arrest was part of a widening array of internal investigations magnified by the beating death of a mentally ill inmate. To date, five correctional deputies, including the three in the beating death case, have been arrested, and three more are on leave in connection with criminal investigations launched by the sheriff's office based on alleged misconduct. The agency has taken several extraordinary steps that include moving key investigators out of the sheriff's headquarters to an off-site location to physically restrict access to sensitive intelligence. And in regulatory news, the Workers' Compensation Prescription Formulary Bill has now been signed by Governor Brown. This new law gives the DWC Administrative Director clear authority to establish a drug formulary which should help control rising prescription drug costs. Notwithstanding this new law, the DWC has already commenced public hearings on a drug formulary, believing that it has authority to adopt one without this legislation. Drug formularies have proven to be very effective at managing the costs of prescription drugs. Health plans have been using formularies in California for decades and they are commonly accepted as a useful cost control mechanism. They control costs by limiting the utilization of high-priced drugs and reducing the price of drugs. Formularies are usually developed by companies known as pharmaceutical benefits managers who design formularies and manage prescription drug benefits for a contracting health plan. At the most basic level, a formulary is a list of drugs that a health plan or insurer agrees to cover. This new law requires the DWC Administrative Director to establish a drug formulary before July 2017 as part of the medical treatment utilization schedule. The Administrative Director would be required to meet and consult with stakeholders prior to the adoption of the formulary and publish at least two interim reports. The DWC will also be required to update the formulary on a quarterly basis and establish an independent pharmacy and therapeutics committee to help with updating the formulary.
The California Applicants Attorneys Association argued against the new law, claiming that establishing a formulary is just another in a long line of takeaways from injured workers. Business groups, on the other hand, supported this bill, and the California Labor Federation also supported the concept of a formulary. And Governor Brown vetoed a bill that would have prohibited medical problems primarily affecting women from being considered when calculating permanent disability and apportionment. The veto was made after signing legislation to give California women the strongest equal pay protection in the nation. This bill attempted to prohibit apportionment if pregnancy or menopause is contemporaneous with the injured worker's claimed injury. This bill also would have required that breast cancer not be less than the comparable impairment rating for prostate cancer in the AMA guides. It also tried to prohibit apportionment in cases of psychiatric injury caused by sexual harassment or any of the conditions listed above if the conditions are contemporaneous with the psychiatric injury. According to the author of the bill, it was part of an effort to end gender bias in the workplace. Some proponents of the bill have argued that the AMA guides are not objective, specifically in the area of gender-specific injuries. Opponents argue that AB 305 was an attempt to undermine an employer's use of apportionment when determining liability for permanent disability awards. Further, opponents pointed to case law and statutes which protect injured workers from abusive apportionment, including apportionment on the basis of gender. The governors seemed to agree with the opponents. His veto message said that the bill was based on a misunderstanding of the AMA guide's evidence-based standards, which is the foundation of the permanent disability ratings, and replaces it with an ill-defined and unscientific standard. The audit unit of the DWC has posted draft revisions to the benefit notice manual and sample benefit notices to the DWC forums for public comment. It welcomes suggestions from the workers' compensation community to improve the quality and clarity of the draft notices. The purposes of this manual is to present advice for accurate and timely completion of benefit notices and mandatory forms that meet the requirements of the regulations. The safe harbor provisions of the regulations provide that using the sample notices devised by the administrative director are presumed to be adequate notice to the employee and shall not be the subject of audit penalties. Various events in the life of a workers' compensation claim trigger the requirement to issue a notice to the employee or claimant and there are required contents for each notice. These new regulations will become effective as of January 1st and apply to all workers' compensation dates of injury except as otherwise noted. But the revised notices may not be used until the regulations take effect on January 1. This 85-page manual is the result of a combined effort of insurers, self-insured employers, 
third-party administrators and employer and employer representative groups working together with the DWC. Ultimately, the claims administrator is responsible for compliance with the regulations governing the issuance of benefit notices, regardless of whether these model notices are used. Failure to provide a correct and timely notice is one of the most often cited offenses in the audit report prepared following the mandatory routine claim audit process. Adherence to the guidance in the manual would likely result in a much more improved audit score. This September, the California Insurance Commissioner approved numerous changes to the way the WCIRB rates premium costs for insured employers. In its decision, the Commissioner approved all of the WCIRB's proposed changes. Taking effect in 2016, there will be changes to the standard classification system that clarify the application of some classifications and amend minimum and maximum payroll limitations. The costs of independent bill review and independent medical review will no longer be included as part of the medical cost containment component of allocated loss adjustment expenses. The cost of IBR and IMR will continue to be included in reported allocated loss adjustment expenses. Expected loss rates rather than pure premium rates will be the new basis for experience rating eligibility. This change in the basis of eligibility, while not significantly impacting which employers will be eligible for experience rating, allows the WCIRB to begin issuing January 2016 experience modifications almost immediately, months sooner than previously possible. Taking effect in 2017 will be more changes to allow the WCIRB to issue debit experience modifications in specified circumstances, excluding the unaudited payroll for policyholders who are uncooperative at the time of a final audit. The commissioner also approved a significant change to the experience rating formula, replacing the fixed $7,000 primary and excess loss split point with a split point that varies based on the size of the employer. This change enhances the accuracy of the experience rating formula, especially for smaller employers, reduces volatility, and provides flexibility for simplifying the experience rating formula in future years. Other changes can be reviewed on the Department of Insurance website. And in medical news, a major trend in contractual payment arrangements between medical providers and payers, which was intended to lower costs while improving the quality of care, may also trigger cost shifting from group health plans to workers' compensation. More group health medical providers are now agreeing to full or partial capitation arrangements under which they're paid a fixed amount for each enrolled plan member assigned to them per period of time. It is a counter to the fee-for-service model under which providers have a financial motivation for ordering care that a patient may not actually need. 
and the prevalence of these capitation arrangements is on the rise. In late 2014, a study found that 15% of what health insurers spend on medical bills is now paid under capitation. But there's a little discussed wrinkle for some common ailments like soft tissue back, knee, or shoulder pain. It's often not clear whether the injury was work-related or non-occupational. Doctors are given a degree of discretion under workers' compensation law to make that determination, which creates a conflict of interest because they usually end up benefiting financially by classifying the injury as work-related. A recent WCRI study found that soft tissue injuries suffered by patients covered under capitated group health plans were 11% more likely to be classified as work-related. And that proportion rose to 31% in states where at least 22% of workers were covered by capitated plans. According to the WCRI, if just 3% of soft tissue condition cases under group health plans were shifted to workers' compensation, total workers' compensation costs would increase by $225 million in California alone. Providing two other examples, the Institute said the comparable figures would be $100 million in Pennsylvania and $25 million in Iowa. A new medical study links industrial noise exposure and heart disease and may lead to new theories of industrial injury. People with long-term exposure to loud noise at work or in leisure activities may be at increased risk of heart disease. Researchers found the strongest link in working-age people with high-frequency hearing loss, which is typically the result of chronic noise exposure. The lead author said people with bilateral high-frequency hearing loss were approximately two times more likely to have coronary heart disease. Past research has already linked noise exposure, especially in workplaces, to coronary heart disease, high blood pressure, and other illnesses. But many of these prior studies lacked individual information about actual noise exposure, relying instead on average decibel levels in the person's environment. The new researchers say high-frequency hearing loss is a better indicator of exposure to loud noise over time. Among those age 50 and under who are also most likely to be exposed to loud noise at work, the heart disease risk was increased fourfold. There was no link to heart disease among people with one-sided hearing loss or loss of lower frequency hearing, further supporting the idea that noise exposure was the culprit. The study only looked at people at one time point, however, and cannot prove that noise or hearing loss is directly cause of heart disease. The researchers also acknowledge that they relied on study participants' own recollections about their work and leisure time noise exposure. Nonetheless, accumulating evidence suggests that exposure to loud noise can increase 
the risk of coronary heart disease. Kinesiology researchers are studying ways to reduce or even prevent muscular and skeletal stresses and pains in the workplace. And now a researcher at McGill University in Quebec says treadmill workstations help diminish work-related musculoskeletal disorders. The study shows that walking while working on a computer may lead to healthier muscular patterns. The muscles in the neck, shoulder region, are the ones that feel the pain and experience fatigue. And researchers asked 20 healthy participants to complete a 90-minute typing task on a computer while sitting or walking on a treadmill. This typing task measured both speed and accuracy. In terms of typing performance, there was no difference between how fast or how many mistakes people were making, whether they were walking or seated. Electrodes collected three points of data, blood flow, muscle activity, and movement or posture with the help of motion capture, and participants were asked to rate their level of discomfort while performing tasks. The results showed that upper limb discomfort was higher when the subjects were sitting and increased the longer they sat. In terms of muscle activity, there were patterns that seemed to be healthier in the neck and shoulders while people were walking. There was lower but more variable muscle activity when subjects were walking compared with sitting, all of which translated into less discomfort. When people were walking, the muscles worked together in a more independent way. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.